add my welcome to Kevin. Tonight, as we come to the scriptures, we are going to continue in the book of James. So if you want to turn there to the fifth chapter, it is page 1013, if you're using the Bible found in the pew. Before we turn to hearing from God's word, would you pray with me? Father, you have revealed wonderful things in your word. You open our hearts and minds tonight to receive them. We learn from your word that you do not send it out without fruition, that it is useful for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Would you do that in us tonight? Would you teach and reprove and correct and train us in righteousness that we may be mature and complete, equipped for every good work? Would you prepare us to hear from your word for the day when we will stand face to face before you? And would you help us to live steadfastly in the days between now and the coming of our Savior in whose name we pray. Amen. Tonight we are going to look at James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers... Do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. One of the most unsettling things in life can be uncertainty. A medical report with some concerning questions, you know layoffs are coming at work, but you don't know how it impacts you. 
uncertainty in a relationship with a child or a parent or a spouse or a friend or a member of the opposite sex. Perhaps just uncertainty about what life will look like three years, five years, ten years down the road. Over the past couple of years, the, the disorienting nature of uncertainty has been demonstrated as schools and travel plans and children's activities and even church events have suddenly become up in the air at times. Most unsettling of all, perhaps, is uncertainty in big questions. What is my purpose? What happens after death? Trying to cope with the hopelessness and fear of living with these unanswered questions leads to all sorts of extreme, self-destructive behaviors. But the opposite is true as well. There is nothing quite so stabilizing as certainty when a child knows beyond the shadow of a doubt that they are loved by their parents. And you can count on a friend to have your back no matter what. When you know who you are, why you exist, and where you are going, certainty brings with it stability and peace. As James comes to chapter 5 of his letter, he continues to address many of the same themes that he has been addressing in earlier chapters. He's still writing to a group of people suffering, dispersed, away from home, suffering and trials, perseverance, and how we use our tongue remain major themes, but as he does so, he does it by pointing his readers to a certainty on which you can depend and which illuminates all of life, namely the coming day of the return of Jesus Christ. At this point in history, Jesus had been born as a baby in Bethlehem. He had lived life perfectly, suffered death as a substitutionary sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. He had been raised from the dead, and he had returned to the glories of heaven. He was seated at the right hand of his father. But he had told his followers that he would be back. And this time it would not be temporary, and it would not be subtle. He would come to judge all the earth, to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. The Westminster Larger Catechism describes the return of Christ like this. Christ is to be exalted in his coming again to judge the world in that he, who was unjustly judged and condemned by wicked men, shall come again at the last day in great power and in the full manifestation of his own glory and of his Father's with all his holy angels, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, to judge the world in righteousness. There is a day coming in which the glory and the power of Jesus will be revealed in a devastating brilliance. And this day shows up throughout the verses that we just read. In 7 and 8, James mentions the coming of the Lord explicitly verse 1, he talks about coming miseries of judgment. In verse 3, he refers to the last days. There's a reference back to Joel chapter 2 and to Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, simply referring to the days between the 
first coming of Jesus and his promised return. James and his readers were living in the last days, and we are living in the last days. In verse 5, he returns to the return, refers to the return of Jesus as the day of slaughter. And in verses 8 and 9, he highlights the immediacy of this event. It is at hand. The judge is at the door. Everything that James says in these 12 verses is undergirded by the reality that Jesus will return and with him will come judgment. James wants his reader, he wants you to be prepared for and to live in light of that day that you might have peace and hope. So with the return of Christ as the foundation for what we're going to look at, we're going to consider our text tonight under three headings. In verses 1 through 6, we are going to look at the warning of coming judgment. In verses 7 through 12, we are going to look at waiting for the coming judgment. And in verses 9 and 12, we are going to look at our words until the coming judgment. Warning, waiting, words. Hopefully three W's to help you follow along. First, in light of the impending return of Jesus, James issues a warning in verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. He begins this section by addressing the rich and warning them of coming miseries. The obvious question is, who is he talking to? Who are the rich? There's some debate about this question, and whether it's referring to wealthy Christians within the church or non-Christians who are outside the congregations. Good arguments can be made either way. I think the message remains pretty similar. It seems most likely to me, from verse 4 especially, that James has a specific group of wealthy landowners, likely non-believing, in view. And almost like a judge in a courtroom, he gives them a sentence of judgment and he lays out the charges against them. In verses 2 and 3, he accuses them of hoarding and wasting their resources. They stored their grain and it rotted. Their valuable garments had been eaten. Their valuable metals corroded. Most likely, there is some literal aspect to all of this. They really had stored up some grain which had rotted. They really had an excess of clothes and, and had been moth-eaten. seems likely that some of this is figurative as well, since gold doesn't really corrode. Some of their wealth had been devalued through lack of use, and they have already experienced this, but even what they still possess is only an illusion, as God could already see rightly its fleeting value. And on top of simply losing their riches to the decay of the world, their tattered riches will be evidence against them when the judge returns. In his commentary on James, John Kelvin noted that God has not appointed gold for rust, nor garments for moth, but on the contrary, he has designed them as aids and helps to human life. So withholding the rightful use of their riches through wasteful hoarding brought, as it were, flesh-consuming fire of judgment upon these rich. The second accusation in verse 4 is that they have cheated and defrauded their workers. 
Rather than paying their workers at the end of each day, they held on to the money, either so they could earn a few more days of interest or because of some justification that it hadn't actually been earned. This is in direct violation of God's command in Deuteronomy 24. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy. Whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land with your town, within your towns, you shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. And that's exactly what happened. They cried out to the Lord. Not only that, not only did, did those who had been mistreated cry out, but the very money that is sitting in their accounts, which should have been taken out and given to these laborers, cries out to God, mixing with the cries of the people themselves. And God hears. There is nothing hidden from God. He sees all things. He hears all things. He judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart in his judgment is that the owner of these fields are guilty and that they are indeed in sin. In verse 5, we see the third accusation. They are accused of using their money on self-indulgence. When they're not storing up their money, they spend it on themselves and on luxurious living. This is all the more heinous in light of withholding pay from others. And finally, they have opened themselves up not only to the charge of greed, but of murder. This is likely a reference to their withholding wages from the laborer who was dependent on them for daily food. By keeping the rightly earned wage, they were not only cheating the workers and their families who had no recourse of resistance, but they were exposing them to the dangers of starvation and death. In other places in Scripture, and even in the book of James, it is plainly taught that riches and material wealth can be gifts from God to be grateful for and used with wisdom. James is not condemning all who have riches. He is condemning the misuse of that which these people have been entrusted. Hoarding and waste, cheating and fraud, indulgence and luxury, they are guilty on all charges, and they are condemned to judgment. There are tragic ironies all over these verses. While condemning others, the rich are themselves condemned. They think they are storing up treasures when in reality they are storing up wrath. They seek comfort, but miseries are coming upon them. They have built up themselves and their wealth, but little do they know. Like a fattened animal, it was preparing them for the day of slaughter. They have saved to be secure, no matter what may come, but they are facing a fire against which their wealth is helpless. It simply provides some of the kindling. Before we go on, we need to pause and look at ourselves. We live in a different day, but we need to hear this morning and to ask yourself about your relationship with whatever riches you may possess. 
Do you hoard and waste? Do you cheat and defraud? Do you live self-indulgently? Or are you generous and fair? Treating others as you would want them to treat you. Accepting what you have as a gift that God has given you to steward. And holding things loosely knowing that the world and all its possessions are temporary. I can't tell you how much is too much to spend on yourself or to save or how much you have to give. I can't delineate what is shrewd financially and what is cheating others, but I can say that the scriptures have much in warning for the rich and the dangers and the temptations of false security or power that often accompany wealth. Jesus clearly taught that where your treasure is reveals a good deal about your heart. It would be good to pause regularly to pray, search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way within me. and Lead me in the way everlasting. We're going to turn now to verses 7 through 12, where James switches from warning to comfort. The same judgment which provided a warning in verses 1 through 6 now provides comfort in 7 through 12, as he returns to addressing the believing recipients of his letter. He exhorts them to patiently wait for the coming judgment. In verse 7, James addresses the Christians he is writing to with the fraternal greeting, brothers. Throughout these next verses, he will echo the affectionate term. And though many of them were likely the laborers who were being cheated out of their wages, he exhorts them to be patient and steadfast. He's in direct opposition to being jealous or vengeful. He is reminding them that justice will come. How often when we get impatient, is it because we don't think anyone else sees what we see, and if we don't act, no one else will? James reminds you that God sees and that he is going to act. How often when we get impatient do we want to take matters into our own hands? James says you can trust him. You know the end of the story. No matter what it looks like today or here on earth, wickedness will be judged and righteousness will be blessed. And all he's really doing here is expanding on what he has already said in chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. For a little later on, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those he loves. James is echoing the same message, and what he does is he gives three examples to further flesh out 
the blessedness of patient and steadfast waiting. First in verse 7, gives the example of the farmer. Most of us don't live in the agricultural life day-to-day that James's original readers likely did, but I think we can still get the idea. The farmer plants and then waits for growth and the bearing of his precious life-sustaining fruit. He does what he can. He plants, he weeds, he maybe tends the field. He cannot hurry the process or bring it about any faster than it will happen. If he does get impatient and pick the fruit before it's ready, it will be worthless. He has to wait in this context and, and in this part of the world for both the early rains and the late rains. Farmer does this for precious yet temporary fruit. How much more ought we to wait for the precious eternal fruit that will come when Christ returns? So we work diligently at the task before us, trusting and waiting on God to accomplish the work that only He can. In verses 10 and 11, James gives the example of the prophets of old. We see that trials and suffering are nothing new in James's day, they're nothing new in our day. They've always been the experience of God's people. And that fact has never detracted from those same people being considered blessed. Sometimes it can be easier for us to see truth when we look at others than we can see it in our own lives. When it is our own experience, it is all too easy to fall prey to the false and deadly belief that the only way to be truly blessed by God is through worldly success and comfort. But when we look at others, especially those who are widely acknowledged to have had a special relationship with God, this lie is more easily exposed. We see through the prophets that even though they experienced many difficulties and walked through deep valleys, they were always led and upheld by the hand of God, the same God who promises to be with you and I. In the same way, God's purposes can often seem clouded in the moment in our lives, so it can be helpful to look back to those for whom God's work are not in process but complete. This is exactly what James does as he draws our attention from the Old Testament saints in general to Job in particular. He reminds them, of what they know about this Old Testament saint. Job was a good man, a wealthy man, and he lost everything. Livestock was taken. All of his servants were killed. All of his children died in one day. And then, as if that wasn't bad enough, he was struck with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Listen to his response to these afflictions. Job 1, 21, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job 2, 10, shall we receive good from God? Shall we not receive evil? Job is an example of believing even when he did not understand of enduring trial with patience and determination to trust in God. 
we get to know even more than Job knew. We know that God was using all these trials to vindicate his own name and to vindicate the righteousness of Job. And in the end, that is exactly what he does, blessing Job both with an increased knowledge of God and restored fortunes. With Job's story, the curtain gets pulled back and we get to see what is going on behind the scenes. We don't often get to see that in our own lives. Job's life is over. We get to see the end that God was working toward. We don't see that yet in our own lives, but James would remind us that we can trust God to work his purposes in us like he did in Job, for his glory, for our good. The farmer, the prophets, and Job in particular demonstrate the patience which James is pointing toward. Our contemporary culture has very little space for patience. Whether it's adding another G to our internet speed or tacking on a fast pass at the amusement park so you can avoid waiting in any lines, we are continually trying to find ways to be faster, to be more efficient. That's not all bad, except when we lose our ability to wait. When we let impatience seep into our very souls, going to take some fighting, but we must be patient with God's world work in our lives and in the world. We know the ultimate end of the story. Christ will return and judge the wicked, while those who trust in him will be fully vindicated. We can look back at saints who have gone before, and we can see how God has led them and the fruits of their lives, and we can trust him to guide the future as he has the past. Be patient, be steadfast, wherever you find yourself, knowing that the return of Christ could be any day now. Before we finish looking at these verses, we need to look at a specific application that James gives for what it looks like to live in this patience, specifically how we use our words until this coming judgment. The tongue and the use of speech have been major themes for James. And here he explains how to live in light of the coming judgment as it relates to our words. And essentially what James says, exhorting Christians, again referring to them as his brothers, reminding them that he is telling them these things because of his great care for them. He says, don't sin in response to being sinned against. Don't sin in your difficulty or your suffering. You may be suffering unjustly, but don't let that be an excuse to sin yourselves. In calling his readers to patience, he addresses two temptations which are especially present when we are impatient. First, grumbling against each other in verse 9, and then swearing an oath in verse 12. Do not grumble against each other, brothers. How easy it is when we're struggling with something to respond with impatience rather than patience. Whether it is the other cars on the road, coworkers in the office, or our families at home, we take out on those around us frustration which often has nothing to do with them. If you've ever gone on a long road trip with children, you have likely seen this in action. 
what happens as soon as they get bored or impatient. Your kids may be different than mine, but our kids start to pester one another and grumble against each other. Finding offense at every location of a leg and suddenly desiring the exact opposite of whatever their sibling wants. James is telling God's people to avoid those family conflicts. We may groan under the weight of trials, but we do not groan against one another. Again, over the last couple of years, we've seen this play out over and over again. With all the things that are swirling around in our culture, in our world, Christians have too often demonstrated their impatience and grumbled against one another. As a church body, in light of the imminent return of Christ, we need to fight for a patience that manifests itself toward one another as well toward the outside world, which is not our natural state. Thanks be to God for a spirit among whose fruits is patience. Finally, James concludes this passage in verse 12 with the admonition to not swear an oath, but simply let our words stand on their own. He begins by saying, above all, I wrestled with for a while. It seems like there are more important things that you've addressed already than this. I don't think the above all means this is the most important thing, more important than greed or murder, but rather that this is a sec- concluding a section in James's mind. Commentators will differ on how far the section back goes back, maybe a chapter, maybe all the way back to chapter 3. I think he is signifying through this that he's addressing a particularly acute danger in the lives of his readers. There's been some debate, there's been a lot of debate over the years on this verse in a number of ways, um, but one of them has been whether it is okay to solemnly swear in a courtroom to tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I don't think that this passage is condemning all oaths, probably a matter of conscience to some degree, but... What it is calling Christians to is to avoid making rash or unrealistic vows. Being the type of person who has to swear by something because your word has not proven to be dependable. Such uses of our speech and words not only reveal our hearts, but also hurt the witness of the name of Christ. And yet again, how easy is it in the midst of trials and to be tempted to look for an easy way out. For the people in James's day, this likely meant some sort of unkeepable promise or oath in order to secure loans, in order to, to have money to put food on the table, knowing that they would never be able to pay back these loans, putting them deeper and deeper into a, a debt, uh, which would likely eventually land them in prison. This may not be a particular challenge in our day, but we too are tempted to promise what we cannot deliver and to give extra assurances trying to convince people to believe us. James challenges the way we use our words towards one another and the dependability of our words. And in both instances, there are warnings connected. In verse 9, there is the threat of judgment. And in verse 12, condemnation because we know words are not just words. Jesus teaches in Matthew that our words proceed from our hearts. So it is good to ask, 
as we did with money, what our words reveal about us. Do you find yourself grumbling against your brothers and sisters in the faith? Do you find that you often make commitments that you cannot keep? Do you have to give assurances to people to get them to believe you? Are you the type of person whose word can be trusted? When you say something, do you mean it? Do you follow through? Again, a good prayer. Oh, Lord, search us and know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way within us and lead us in the way that is everlasting. In summary, James wants you to recognize that you are living in the last days. Live like it. How you handle riches and how you handle words and how you live all of life. Be patient as you wait for the certain return of Jesus. As we come to the end of our text, I want to ask you a question. Do you live in light of who God is? What he has said and done, his purposes and plans, and what he has promised? Or do you look through the lens of what the world says and promises? In his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, John Bunyan reflected on the strength to sustain him through 12 years in prison. And he wrote, as Paul said, the way not to faint is to look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He goes on to refer to this idea of living in light of the eternal things as living upon God who is invisible. This is what you need to do if you are going to establish your heart and be patient and steadfast in the midst of whatever trials you may be walking through right now, whatever may come your way before the day of Christ's return. Fix your eyes on and live upon God who is invisible. Consider how James helps you to do that in these verses. Look at how God is described He's the Lord of hosts in verse 4. He's the judge in verse 9. Compassionate and merciful in verse 11. James does not have some vague idea of a divine being to try to help you feel better. He knows God and he wants you to know God and to live your life based on the reality of this God. He's the Lord of hosts, the leader of armies. This term is used throughout the scriptures to denote the power of of God. He is all-powerful, and he is compassionate. What a wonderful combination, that the one who has compassion on us is also the one who has the power to do something about it. He is the just judge. Wickedness will be judged, and yet he is merciful. There is hope for those who have wickedness in our own hearts. This is truly remarkable to be both merciful and just, and yet we know it to be true. We know it through Jesus Christ who died and was raised again. Justice was satisfied and mercy extended. Mercy and justice met in Jesus at the cross, and absolute power was demonstrated in the empty tomb. 
and it is this Jesus upon whose return you may confidently wait. There is a lot of uncertainty in life, but there is something that is absolutely 100% guaranteed. Jesus is coming again. This is either a caution or a comfort, depending on where you stand. The last paragraph of the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way, Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. If you don't know him, may you take this warning seriously. He is coming back and will judge you. Repent and turn to him before it is too late and the coming miseries arrive. If you do know him, take comfort. He is coming, and you will reap precious fruit when he does. Be patient. Fix your eyes on the one who will soon return. Let's pray. Father, as has often been prayed, would you comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. You know our hearts and what we need to hear. You speak your word. Would you use it to grow us, to draw us near to yourself, to fix our eyes upon you, and to help us to live upon you, the invisible, true God. Ask these things through your Son, Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.